Welcome, Professor David Hopkins. Thank you. Now, Professor Hopkins, you describe yourself as a school improvement activist. That's a title that's sure to give you some grief. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose that anybody who, like myself, works in education's twilight zone has to justify themselves in some way. (laughs) Um, I've always tried throughout my career uh, uh, to inhabit that space uh, in the intersection between policy, research and practice. And I found that it's not always been comfortable, but it's been the most uh, important p- position to be in when you're actually help actively helping schools to transform uh, themselves. And uh, your own background, I mean, not everybody becomes a reform agent. Uh, what was the catalyst for yourself for taking that course in your life? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question as well. <laughs> the first, I suppose, was that I started life as an outward bound instructor. That was my first professional job. And of course, Outward Bound is about uh, personal growth through adventure, uh, developing uh, self-empowerment and uh, and confidence amongst people. And I took those ideas uh, into school teaching with me. And I remember once uh, just leaving school late one night thinking, well, you're not not bad at um, at teaching, David, but I think you'd be better uh, at actually working with adults. And it was that sort of uh, almost Damascus Road uh, (laughs) thought that sort of encouraged me to go into teacher education and then sort of the, the career path I followed subsequently. Now, this uh, four-module conference, it's uh, over the next 12 months in Melbourne, and it reflects uh, your research work. Uh, You might like to just uh, elaborate a little on that, uh, David. Well, one of the recent roles I've had uh, is, uh, was as the chief advisor to uh, the British government on school, on school reform. Um, I did that, uh, I held that position during the second uh, term of the Blair, Blair government, where we were trying to uh, reshape the reform agenda to, to focus much more on the personalization of learning and of building capacity inside, um, inside the schools. And uh, this book, uh, which is called Every School a Great School, seems to me to be what the goal of policy should be, mm. uh, is an attempt to lay out a, a, a route map, a direction of travel, uh, by, by which education systems can begin to move towards ensuring that every school is great. And this four-module program uh, looks at some of the techniques and strategies uh, for actually doing that. Mm. Now, the first module, which um, we're talking about, and you're here in Melbourne uh, at the moment for, uh, David, is where are we really at with school transformation? That was part of today's theme. Uh, where are we? <laughs> Well, it obviously depends which uh, school system in the world you happen to be part of. Um, As it so happens, I think there are a great number of similarities between the school system here in Victoria and what I'm used to uh, in England. And I think uh, where we are is we're making a transition uh, between uh, education reform that has been driven pretty hard by uh, the national government in England or the state uh, dip department here in Victoria to one where uh, increasingly uh, school principals, school leaders are going to take uh, the responsibility for, for reform. That's going to require a very different type of educational landscape. But I think we're beginning to uh, engage with those ideas, those strategies here in Victoria uh, as we are in England at, at the moment. Mm. Personalised learning, very central to um, your work and your presentation. Uh, Why is the time ripe for that and what is it? Well, I think we've come out uh, globally. We're beginning to come out of a decade 
of pretty centralized reforms, which has had a focus on the sort of the quantitative or measured outcomes of, um, of student per performance. Now, there's obviously nothing wrong in that, but what, it ha well, what, what happens occasionally uh, is that it leads to a rather uh, a narrowing of the curriculum uh, and leads to a focus on um, a children's uh, attainment uh, uh, as measured on standardized tests rather than developing their learning capability. And it seems to me that uh, what we need for the 21st century are young, young people who have um, a powerful range of learning strategies, who are confident and able to take their place in the knowledge economy. And that's one aspect of what personalized learning is about. It's about building personal capability, personal competence. The other is to ensure that the learning offer that we provide in schools in our system uh, is um, uh, well calibrated for the needs of every youngster so that we're able to provide you know, the appropriate learning pathways, the appropriate curriculum depending upon the aspirations and, ast and, 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 uh, and um, attitudes uh, of, individu of individual young people. That's got uh, very major implications for the way we, we operate our schools and the culture of schools, David. Yes, it does. Um, but it's interesting, though, that uh, today we've had a, a, a series of case studies from uh, Victorian schools, and they have been uh, particularly uh, exciting in the way that uh, they've illustrated how schools can transform and adapt to work to work in this way. So although it requires a shift, it's not a shift that's sort of foreign to a number of schools. There are, there are mm. already sort of good role models um, existing in this province, uh, in this state, and elsewhere. Now, does that link back to the work of which you've stated you're especially proud of in England, improving the quality of education for all? Uh, are there links there, David? Yeah. Uh, the Improving the Quality of Education for All uh, school improvement program was one we developed uh, back in the late 1980s when uh, there was the, the beginnings of centralised reform c coming through in England. And we felt we didn't want schools to be done too. We wanted schools to have the capacity to manage external change. And so we developed uh, these strategies, these ways of working, which were designed to you know, build uh, school capability to manage change, to adapt change, I suppose, to internal purpose, to, to, to adapt external change so that the schools can really provide the type of uh, customised learning ex experience that students and pa parents require. Mm. One of the things that's central to all of this is uh, a term you use today quite, quite often, uh, David, the moral purpose of yeah. schooling. Is that a beacon for this sort of reform? Well, I think it has to be uh, because I think we need to be very clear as to why we're doing what we are doing in schools. Um, my interpretation of moral purpose is that um, we need to create the conditions in schools where every young person can reach their potential. Uh, and that, I think, puts, uh, by stating it as clearly and as boldly as that, that A, provides a sort of a direction in which a school needs to go in, but it also provides a discipline uh, on the staff of a school by which they can be held accountable by students and by parents as well. The, the, the role of the state in all of this, uh, they're going to have to give up a little bit of uh, uh, power, I guess, David. Well, I, in some ways, and, and sometimes politicians worry about that. <laughs> um, 
I'm I'm not too worried about it. I actually don't think it actually does require a total abandonment uh, of their position. It's a shift, really. Um, I think governments increasingly should articulate themselves the moral pur purpose, what we actually, you know, what we want for young people in the state of Victoria, and then instead of actually telling people what to do, what they do is to try and facilitate and create the conditions where schools can actually provide this type of education for the young people. So it's a shift really from the state becoming the provider and deliverer of services to really becoming the champion and, and the, the champion of student rights, the challenger of schools, but also organizing the system so it's schools who are increasingly providing services for each other in the pursuit of this sort of approach to schooling. Are we talking about accountability with empowerment or some such concept? There, yeah, I think, so. I, I think so. I think so. I, I, I'm a great believer in, in accountability, particularly professional accountability. We receive significant funding from uh, the, the public, so we need to be accountable for the way in which we spend that. But the accountability shouldn't be in for, it shouldn't be in the form of sort of external arbitrary measures. It should be in terms of professional practice. And that's at the heart, I think, of the debates we, we've been having today. Mm, it's, it, it's, it's a real dilemma for people in Victoria because accountability here is seen very much as times as an inhibitor yeah. to creativity and empowerment. Yeah. And you know, certainly if you were in England a dozen years ago, uh, that's what, what a lot of our principals would have been saying then. And they were true to, to an extent because um, heavily imposed uh, external accountability, accountability systems can be a, a barrier uh, on development. What's happened in English schools, however, uh, has been that uh, the principals have actually taken the techniques of accountability, the use of data, forms of uh, formative assessment and so on, and actually used them as a way of driving the reform program inside the schools. And we found that when principals are using data effectively, then that becomes um, a really sort of uh, powerful way of ensuring uh, the personalized le learning that we've been talking about. We need to take a short break, uh, listeners. Um, you didn't go anywhere in the break, did you? <laughs> didn't have time. I wasn't allowed to. No. Um, we are talking about personalised learning before the break, uh, Professor Hopkins, and you s identify five components of that. Uh, you might like to explain that. Well, uh, personalised learning is a, uh, an approach to schooling rather than a, uh, uh, an explicit methodology. Um, and certainly the experiences that we've had suggest that there are sort of five elements uh, that uh, a school has to address if it's going to be really effective at uh, personalising learning for all the young people. The first is to uh, be very clear about the learning skills uh, that you wish a young person to acquire. We found that uh, in many countries there's a sort of a rhetoric about building learning capability, but teachers find it quite difficult to put it right at the heart of the, of the curriculum. And so we've been developing some ways in which um, uh, a focus on learning, building assiduously the personal skills, the learning skills, and the employability of skills of, of youngsters feature very, very strongly in, inside the, um, the school curriculum. 
Underpinning that, uh, and secondly, is an approach to um, to assessment, which is called around the world formative assessment or assessment for learning. And this involves t teachers feeding back uh, uh, the results of tests, uh, the results of uh, homework uh, to students in a way that they can learn from, from their strengths and weaknesses. It involves the teachers being very, very clear about the criteria that they use for, for assessment and um, enabling youngsters to actually understand and sort of utilize those criteria thems themselves. The third element uh, of uh, personalized learning in a school is the way in which a school arranges the curriculum. And I think there's often a sort of a, a, a tension between the mainstream curriculum, the entitlement curriculum that we'd want every youngster in a state like Victoria to follow, and the rather more customized curriculum that uh, individual st students wish to follow because of their aspirations or aptitudes. And it's making clear decisions about what the curriculum provision for individual youngsters uh, is that sort of underpins this third element. Mm. The fourth is about uh, trying to arrange the school uh, as an organization where uh, teachers can learn uh, as well as students. <laughs> uh, because if you're going to do the, th the three things I've just been talking about, then uh, often the teacher's training that they had when they first came out of university is no longer sort of um, a fit, fit, fit for purpose. Mm. And so, in a sense, uh, teachers need to be um, upskilling themselves and engaging in sort of ongoing professional development in order to keep pace with the learning needs of students. And finally, and the fifth component you refer to, is a way in which we sort of organize and redesign the school around personalized learning. We were talking today about a number of schools who are redesigning the learning space. If you take the, the previous four components seriously, then the image of schooling with a teacher in front of 30 youngsters um, is no longer the, the appropriate image. And it's about how we res redesign the school's organization and the school structure to allow this to happen. Mm. One of the things that you said today which really um, attracted me, David, was your three-phase strategy for school improvement because anyone who's been around education for any period of time would know that we've got plenty of good ideas, but sustainable change is something that we often struggle at. Uh, yeah. The core to this model, this strategy of yours, you might like to explain? Well, you're absolutely right, Henry, that, that one of the... Um real sort of uh, problems about education is that we've had lots of fads, lots of good ideas, they float around but uh, and everyone gets terribly excited about them but they never really embed themselves inside mm. a school. And um, there, 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 are good, there, there, there are reasons for that and um, I was trying to explain that uh, to colleagues to today. The reason is that uh, schools by and large haven't really developed a capacity for development. Um, they're very good at uh, you know, uh, turning out, churning out the traditional curriculum and traditional lesson plans. But as organizations, they haven't been um, uh, sophisticated enough, I suppose, to develop the sort of R&D capacity that lots of other organizations do as a matter of course. So what I was talking about really was uh, a way in which a school can allocate some of its resource to actually do development work, to develop new ideas, which you, which you can then feed back into its um, mainstream activities. And key to this uh, is the development of what I 
call a school improvement group, which is a, 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 a group, a team of teachers representing a, a vertical slice of the school staff who sort of uh, become the internal change agents of the school, so to speak. Uh, they're the people who, uh, in the past, I would work with and train um, in new instructional techniques or new assessment techniques. And they would bring these ideas back into the school and work with colleagues to um, uh, embed them in the ongoing uh, lesson plans that are the bread and butter of the teacher's work. Mm, the school improvement uh, team is a, is a fascinating idea, David, because as you elaborated today, your, your model of a third of people are for change, a third are in the middle, and there's that third group which are the blockers and the key is getting the blockers ultimately out or on. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And in my experience, um, these blockers, as you just described them, um, most most of them uh, are, you know, uh, find that uh, actually the work is worth is worthwhile and want to become part of it themselves. Most people don't uh, really choose to be blockers. They're there because perhaps uh, they've had some bad experiences. And what one needs to do is to create a sort of an optimistic environment inside the school where everyone can feel uh, effective and have, has the op op opportunity to become increasingly effective. And in my experience, uh, when you've actually created those conditions, most, most people respond positively to it. In those, few, in, in those few instances where they don't, then you're right, they should be encouraged to sort of, uh, <laughs> seek employment in other areas. Uh, and we wouldn't be talking about our universities then, would we? Well, would we certainly not, certainly not. David, you mentioned also that uh, you need a school community working together with some very important common agreements. Uh, you might like to elaborate on that. Well, we talked um, earlier in the discussion about moral purpose, about um, you know, what the school is for. And um, most schools now have uh, statements of purpose, uh, which are about uh, developing the whole, the, ho the whole child. And what I was referring to t today is how we actually take the implications of that and are serious about the implications of that in the way in which we organize the school and the way in which we as professionals in, in the school behave. So I think there are sort of um, yeah, guidelines, uh, codes of practice, I suppose, that are about professional development and about uh, translating uh, the vision of the school into practice. And it's those guidelines that, that I was uh, alluding to earlier. Mm. Now, the Shanbrook uh, experience, you worked with uh, those people in England. Uh, uh, any, any relevance with that uh, for the people of Victoria? Well, the school that um, you're just referring to, Shanbrook School, is one of our um, upper secondary schools in Bedfordshire, England. And we worked very closely with that school over the last, um, well, up to, during the 1990s, or in fact, the 1980s and the 1990s. And this was a school by any uh, stretch of the imagination that was an outstanding school you'd want your children to go into. It was um, highly focused on learning. Uh, there was an excitement about the school. The kids were animated. They did an extraordinary range of activities. But, Henry, you know, I've been into schools like Schoenbrook here, here in Victoria mm. as well. And good schools, um, wherever they are in the world, uh, share a common set of, char of characteristics. I suppose what we've been trying to do on this program, uh, in these four modules, is to put forward a methodology or a strategy where every school can become great. Uh, time's on the wing, David. In closing, what advice would you give to those school communities that are contemplating school improvement but are still daunted by the challenge? 
Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that you're doing this because you want to actually create better conditions and better life chances for young people. And it's that that provides um, initially the sort of external motivation for engaging in this way of working. Secondly, I think, is to uh, start small but to think big um, and to just uh, take on uh, aspects of development which you know will make a difference in the short term to your students but that over time you build a program that becomes uh, even deeper and even more ful fulfilling. When you do that, I think, you begin to change the culture of the school, that uh, colleagues become more optimistic, uh, that students become more, more excited about go going into school, and you engage in this, you begin to develop a virtuous circle of, of development where the school becomes a place where everybody learns, becomes also increasingly the focus of community working as well. And that, that I suppose, is the sort of the goal for educators, not just in Victoria, but mm. all over the world. Mm. Um, David, can I thank you for your time and, and congratulate you on your personal...